If we ask a number of different people the question, what do you think God wants us to do? Certainly, we'd hear many different answers. But what if we ask God this all-important question? If we were to say to God, I want this salvation you offer, what do I need to do to get it? What do you think he would say in response? Let's open up our Bibles to Exodus 13, where we begin to find an answer to this all-important question. What must I do to be saved? While I was growing up, our family enjoyed going on canoe trips. We would get together with another family or two and drive to the current river in central Missouri and camp out and canoe. And as I got older, my sister and I would take along our air mattresses and float down the river at points along the way. And I'm not sure life in this world gets much better than floating down a general river on an air mattress on a sunny day with your feet dangling in the cool water. I remember one trip, and I was about seven or eight years old, and we came to a point where we were stopping for lunch. And somehow I ended up by myself out in the water where the current was really strong, and I couldn't seem to get a footing to walk across the flow of the current to where my dad was standing on the shore. I kept slipping and falling, and I remember getting really panicked that the current was going to carry me away. And my dad was on the shore telling me, you can do it. And in addition to being scared, I remember being really frustrated that he wouldn't come out and get me. Looking back, I think he wanted me to discover that I could overcome this problem on my own under his watchful eye, that I had it within me to get through the water and safely onto the shore. And I did. I emerged from the water having saved myself, thank you very much. I suppose it's good for little girls to learn that you can struggle through something hard and overcome it. A sense of, I can handle this myself, is not a bad thing for us to have in many areas of life. But it is a problem when we bring our sense of self-sufficiency into our relationship with God. There are some things we cannot overcome. Some problems we cannot solve on our own simply by trying harder. Rather than increased self-confidence, what we really need is more God-reliance. Oftentimes, someone who is asked if he or she is a Christian will respond by saying, well, I'm trying. But anyone who says they are trying to be a Christian simply doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian. That answer betrays a belief that becoming a Christian is a process rather than an event, something we make happen through our own efforts, rather than something God accomplishes apart from our efforts. But do we have some part in salvation? Exodus 13 through 17 will help us find an answer to the all-important question, what must I do to be saved? In Exodus 13, we catch up with the people of Israel after they've left Egypt and headed home to the land of their ancestors. And everybody knows that when you've been away a long time and they've been gone for 400 years, 
You want to take the shortest, most direct route to get home. So it would make sense that they would want to take the well-trodden way up the delta through the coastal strip to Canaan. But that's not the way they went. Look in Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. God knew that these people, fresh out of slavery, were not ready militarily or spiritually to come against the armies of those living in the Promised Land and the numerous other challenges they would face there. They needed to be made stronger through testing. And at the same time, more dependent on God by experiencing his supply for all of their needs. So God charted their course through the wilderness, leading them with a miraculous light. Look in verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The cloud of God's presence with them gave light and provided a covering for them in the hot desert. For these ex-slaves who were used to working long, hot days under the scorching sun in Egypt, it must have provided welcome relief. The God who had brought them out of bondage was evidently going to care for them tenderly. But this indirect route was confusing. They were well on their way to freedom when God ordered them to turn around, go back, and to camp between the desert and the sea. It was as if God led them into a blind alley with walls on both sides, and they quickly discovered that they couldn't go backwards either. When they looked back over their shoulders, they saw a growing dust cloud drummed up by the hooves of Egyptian horses pulling 600 chosen chariots. Pharaoh was coming out against a trapped mass of ex-slaves with his most prestigious and imposing force. And as the world's most fearsome army thundered toward them, the Israelites were understandably afraid. They could see clearly the power and purposes of Pharaoh, but they had lost sight of the power and purposes of God. The Israelites were caught between an unconquerable army and an impassable sea. If it were true that God helps those who help themselves, then this is when we might expect Moses or some other quick-thinking hero among the group to come up with some kind of plan for thwarting this attack, some trick play or surprising strategy. But the truth is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. And he does so when there is nothing they can do, no chance for escape. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness, the Israelites cried out to Moses, because they saw only two options, death or going back to Egypt to slavery. They didn't see God. But then instructions came from the Lord to Moses, and the people waited expectantly to hear Moses pass along the strategy. We find it in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses didn't tell the Israelites to pull themselves together so that they could mount a strong defense. There was nothing they could do and nothing they needed to do. God said to Moses in verses 15 and 16, Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. They weren't handed a long list of things to do to accomplish their own salvation. They were not about to be turned into soldiers. They would simply be spectators. Someone else was going to do the fighting. And all they needed to do was stand firm in their confidence that God would fight this battle for them and watch him accomplish his saving work. Look in chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This was not one of those miracles that happened in an instant. They were on the west side of the sea, and God exerted his authority over the wind starting on the east side of the sea. All night the Israelites waited as the east wind submitted to God's authority, dividing the waters, creating a wall of water on each side and dry ground in between. And while it was God doing the saving, their salvation did require a response of faith. They had to put their faith in what God had said. Their faith became evident when they took that first step into the Red Sea behind Moses. Now, certainly this vast group of likely two million Israelites had varying amounts of faith. Some probably expected the walls of water to let loose on them with every step while others likely walked through with a sense of great confidence and wonder that the God who had just brought down 10 supernatural plagues on Egypt would keep the waters of the Red Sea at bay until they were safely across. Yet when they got to the other side, both kinds of people were equally safe. The Hebrew word Moses used for Lord in verse 13 is actually Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. So Moses said, essentially, you will see Yeshua. And this makes sense to us because we know the salvation of God is bound up in a person, the person given the name Yeshua, Jesus himself. When we hear the word of Yeshua, the salvation of the Lord, and respond in faith, we are united to the greater Moses. And like the Israelites, we pass from death to life. Jesus described salvation in exactly these terms when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In opening up the Red Sea to make a way through death for his people, God was showing how he would miraculously make a way through death for all who come to him by faith through his son, Jesus Christ. While Moses stretched out his hands over the sea to make a way for his people, Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross 
to make a way for us. While Moses plunged into the waters of the Red Sea and all those who followed him emerged on the other side unscathed, Christ plunged into the waters of death so that following him we might pass through death unscathed to resurrection life. While the waters of the Red Sea destroyed Pharaoh and his armies when Moses stretched out his hand, Jesus brought destruction on the devil when he was nailed to the cross, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The sea the people feared became the means of their deliverance from the Egyptians. And likewise, the physical death we fear becomes the means of our deliverance into the promised land of God's presence. We need not fear death. Our deliverer has raised his rod and we can pass through on dry ground unscathed. And when the day comes that you stand on that shore or as you stand with those you love when they come to the end of this life, hear him say to you, fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The salvation of God put a song in Israel's heart but it was quickly crowded out by discontent. Israel's singing and celebration soon turned into sourness and complaining. Of course, if you have ever set out on a cross-country car trip with a couple of toddlers, you can't help but recognize this scene. It doesn't take long at all for the back seat to descend into grumbling and complaining and needing a drink and wanting something to eat. I remember when our son, Matt, was about three or four, and David and I with Matt were heading out on a car trip. And on the way out of town, we stopped at Sam's Club. We had seen there a combo TV VCR made for the car, but we didn't buy it when we first saw it because it seemed too expensive. But the prospect of six hours in the car with a bored toddler somehow made the price seem insignificant. On that trip and many that followed, David or I would push play and one of us would say, how much did that thing cost? And the other one would say, it doesn't matter. Imagine traveling with two million toddlers who are already grumbling and complaining when you've barely started the journey. I need a drink. I need something to eat. When are we going to get there? Well, that was Moses' plight. It was three days into the wilderness when the people of Israel began to get really thirsty and there was no water. Now, we might expect that people who had seen the water of the Nile turn into blood and seen the waters of the Red Sea part would be able to rest in knowing that providing water was really not an insurmountable problem for their God. Surely, the one who had brought them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea would also provide for them in the wilderness. So here was lesson number one in daily provision in the wilderness. Look at Exodus 15, verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This was a place of abundance. One spring for each of the 12 tribes, and obviously enough water to nourish 70 palm trees. Perhaps they should have gotten the message that their God intended to provide for them in every way. 
But as we will see, gratitude is not going to be their strong suit. Instead, the Israelites proved to be world-class whiners. Look on in Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What distorted memories they have already of their days in Egypt. And what short memories they have of God's abundant provision. God would be right at this point to rain down fire on them. Rather than move forward in their salvation, they wanted to go in reverse and return to slavery. They convinced themselves that there were only two options, dying in Egypt with a full stomach or dying in the desert with an empty stomach. God seemed to have no place in the picture. But instead of raining down fiery judgment, God rained down grace. Look at verses 13 through 15 in chapter 16. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The Hebrew word, manhu, means what is it? That's what they actually called this miraculous food that was sent to them every day by God for 40 years. For 40 years, the people ate, what is it? What's for supper? Someone would ask, and the answer was always, what is it? There was never anything like it before, and there hasn't been since. This was nourishment supplied by a miracle of God, a daily miracle that lasted for 40 years. But it was also a daily test because they couldn't store up any for the next day. They simply had to trust that God would send the manna they needed again tomorrow. I don't know about you, but I strongly prefer going to bed at night knowing that my refrigerator and pantry are stocked for tomorrow. I want to know that there is enough money in the bank today for tomorrow's bills. I want to know that I have built up and stored up enough energy for tomorrow's challenges, enough goodwill to get my way, enough ideas for tomorrow's chapter. And this reveals that my natural setting is not to trust God, but to trust in what I can accumulate, what I can create and collect. But to experience the salvation of God is to experience and rest in his daily provision for all of our needs. God has always been in the business of giving his people just enough to keep us dependent upon him. That's why we're supposed to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because he wants us to come back and ask him again tomorrow. Because he wants relationship with us that is fostered through daily dependence. Israel's part was merely to receive the bread he provided for them, eat it, and trust him to provide it again tomorrow, 
They didn't have to plant or tend or harvest. There was no to-do list other than to simply gather up what was on the ground right outside their door on a daily basis. Now, this idea of having the groceries delivered to the door sounds pretty good to me. I do not enjoy going to the grocery store, and I often put it off until we have only moldy bread and canned tuna, and a trip to the store can no longer be avoided. I head into a fully stocked store, and I pitch boneless, skinless chicken breasts into the cart along with a loaf of any kind of bread and any kind of fresh produce anyone could want. And of course, a brownie mix is always good to have on hand for when that chocolate craving must be satiated. But clearly, it was not that way in the desert. And it was still nothing like that in the days of Jesus, long after the Israelites had entered into the land. Putting food on the table day by day was a much more difficult task than it is for us today. That's why when Jesus fed 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish, they followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, hoping to ingest more of his miraculous bread. Of course, Jesus knew exactly what they were after. Having felt the pleasure of a full stomach the day before, they were thinking about how good it would be to have someone fill their stomach like that every day. They liked what they saw in his miracle-working power, and they wanted more of it. But they didn't really want him. Turn in your Bible to John 6, and as we read about this scene in the Gospels, you'll find that we can't help but feel a bit indicted ourselves, because we know we have been exactly like this. We've come to God again and again with our list of requests and expectations, asking him to be the supplier for the life we've charted out for ourselves. Yet if we're honest, we realize that we have often been more interested in what he can give to us than we are in who he intends to be to us. Jesus had the people's attention by satiating their physical appetite. But he wanted to use this desire for food to teach them about what he had really come to do. Look in John 6, verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And their initial response was promising. Look at verse 28. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? But they didn't particularly like the answer to their question. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They wanted to know what they needed to do. And Jesus said there was no work for them to do. That they needed only to eat the bread right in front of them by believing in him. According to John Piper, believing is seeing Jesus for the food that he is and eating. That is, taking him into your soul, your life, as the all-satisfying, life-giving treasure that he is. Look back in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This bread was not a what is it, but a who is it. Jesus could do more than multiply the bread. 
He was the bread, the spiritual bread from heaven that gives life to the world. Jesus was saying, come to me, trust me, feed on me, draw your life from mine. The gospel is not about what you must do for God. It's about what he has done for you through the savior he has sent, Jesus Christ. And all that is required of you is to believe what he has already accomplished. That it's not simply for the world out there, but for you. When you take and eat, his life pulses through your life. Interestingly, when the people heard this, they did exactly what their ancestors did in the wilderness. Look in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. But they were about to become outright offended when they heard what Jesus said next. Look in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Wait a minute. This made no sense. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh? Jesus was saying that eating the true bread means nourishing our souls with the benefits of his atoning death. You see, we don't eat this bread simply by listening to Jesus' teaching on the hillside or by observing his miracles among the masses. To eat the bread of life means that we must savor his sacrificial death as our life. Jesus offers himself to you and invites you to feed on his death as your life. But maybe you are a bit like the people of his day and this is not really what you were looking for from Jesus. Perhaps you had a different kind of miracle in mind. A miracle that would take care of what you see as your most pressing problem today. Perhaps the order you've placed with God is for the miracle of a body rid of cancer or a bank account filled with money or a house filled with an intact family. And as you see Jesus offering himself to you as the bread of life, if you're honest, perhaps you'll grumble on the inside. So often we want to use God to get things from him that we think we need when he is what we need. And he offers himself freely. Here is Jesus offering himself to them and to us as true bread that will save and sustain. And what is our part in this? All we need to do is take and eat. But the truth is, many people would rather starve to death then feed upon Christ. Many people simply do not believe 
that the bread of life will really taste good to them, that it will satisfy them, sustain them over the long haul. And so they refuse to eat it. In John 6, 58, we read, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. All who insist on being self-sufficient and feeding themselves will one day find that they have starved themselves to death. But all those who take and eat the bread of life will pass through death and find unending life and satisfaction on the other side. So as they came up with new ways to fix the what is it every day, the Israelites were learning the lesson that the God who saved them will provide for them, right? Well, evidently not. It would seem that they'd gotten just a few miles down the road when complaints started bubbling up in the back seat once again. And this time it wasn't about a lack of food, but a lack of water. And once again, rather than go to their divine provider and ask him for what they needed, they began to complain to Moses. But it was really more than simply complaining. We read that they quarreled with Moses. The word here actually refers to lodging an official complaint or bringing charges against someone in a court of law. They accused Moses of attempted murder, saying that he had brought them out into the desert to kill them with thirst. They made themselves accuser, judge, jury, and executioner, and they intended to carry out the death sentence on Moses by stoning. Look in Exodus 17, 4 and 5. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. More is happening here than may be obvious to us at first. Moses is to pass on before the people, not as an accused criminal, but as the judge of Israel, holding in his hand the rod of judgment. The people well understood the symbol of the rod in the hand of Moses. Would he lift up that rod so that God's judgment would come down on them? Certainly that's what they deserved. But then God said to Moses, Back in chapter 17, verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. What's happening here? The Almighty God did not stand before men like a servant. Men stood before God. Yet here, God says that he will stand before Moses the judge. Why would God, in the midst of this courtroom scene, identify himself with the rock and instruct Moses to strike it. He will stand in place of the accused, identifying himself with the rock, and he will bear the judgment the people deserved for their rebellion. Instead of receiving punishment, they will be flooded with the mercy of a gushing stream of water flowing from the rock. 
Do you see the picture Exodus is painting here? The Apostle Paul did. Paul recognized this rock. He saw that it was God in the person of Jesus Christ who stood on the rock. It was Christ who was struck with the rod of God's justice in place of guilty people. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Long ago in the desert, God showed his people how he would execute just judgment against sinful rebellion while also saving guilty sinners by pouring out the punishment we deserve on Christ. By his substitutionary death, he would become to us a stream of living water, which is exactly what he said when he stood up in the temple on that last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How would he become to us this living water? By becoming thirsty himself. On the cross, as he bared his back to be struck by the rod of God, Jesus said, I thirst. There on the cross, certainly he must have been physically thirsty as he hung in the hot sun. But his cry was really about the agonizing spiritual thirst he was experiencing in those dark hours. There, Jesus experienced the desperate thirst that you and I deserve to experience forever. He experienced that thirst in our place so that we need never experience it, but can enjoy a never-ending, always refreshing stream of living water. What is your part in this salvation? Drink. Drink. Drink the living water that flows from Christ alone. Believe in him. Enter into a trusting, ongoing relationship with him in which he daily fills you with his own overflowing life and joy. Are you seeing that the physical salvation of the Israelites at the Red Sea provides us with a picture of the spiritual salvation available to all who will trust in Christ? Well, the Exodus story reveals the salvation of one group of people from their enemies, the Egyptians. In the gospel story, we discover the salvation available to all who will come to Jesus. We simply cannot save ourselves or heal ourselves or provide for ourselves the kind of food and drink that will enable us to be satisfied and saved forever. So are you willing to follow the true light who will lead you home through the wilderness of this world? Will you entrust yourself to the strong Savior 
who will bring you through the waters of death and into everlasting life? Will you eat the true bread of the body of the crucified and risen Christ and drink the living water that flows from him? Lots of people in this world have settled for looking to Christ as an example. But we need much more than an example. We need a Savior. That day, when I was a little girl canoeing on the current river, I was able to figure out how to save myself, and I emerged from the rushing river on my own. But the day will come when I will stand on the shore of another kind of river. The day will come when each of us will find ourselves relentlessly pursued by that enemy we call death. We won't be able to outrun or overcome it. And when that day comes, we can remember that Christ provides the only way through the waters of death. He has gone through those waters before us and has soundly defeated the enemy of death so that we can be confident that we too will emerge from the waters of death unscathed. We will see the salvation of the Lord. It won't be up to us to save ourselves. Jesus, our Yeshua, will get us safely to the other side.